Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Kelly Cochran closed her eyes as tightly as she could until they started to water. She took a few shallow breaths to raise her heart rate. She knew she was ready when her hands began to shake. Only then did Kelly finally dial 911 to tell them her husband, Jason, was barely breathing. He was vomiting and sweating. His face was turning blue. Between panicked breaths, she begged the dispatcher to send an ambulance. When they tried to collect more information on Jason, she ignored them. She claimed she had to tend to her husband and abruptly hung up. Seconds later, Kelly breathed a sigh of relief. She turned back toward Jason and watched as his eyelids fluttered open and closed. She wiped some vomit from the side of his mouth with a towel. Then she wrapped her hands around his neck and squeezed. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed Kelly and Jason Cochran's dysfunctional marriage. The couple made a blood pact on their wedding night to kill anyone who stood in the way of their relationship. When Kelly started dating a man named Chris Regan years later, she and Jason finally made good on their promise. This week, we'll discuss the investigation into Chris's disappearance and the disturbing measures Kelly took to avoid being caught. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On October 27, 2014, 53-year-old Terry O'Donnell unlocked the door to Chris Regan's apartment. The moment she stepped inside, her heart sank. The place was a total mess. Half-packed boxes littered the floor and post-it note to-do lists covered the cabinets. The sink was piled high with dirty dishes and a suitcase lay open on the bed. Chris was one of Terry's best friends. This wasn't like him at all. Usually, he was almost compulsively neat and organized. The more Terry poked around, the more disturbed she became. The last time she talked to Chris, he said he was planning on driving over to Asheville, North Carolina to take a drug test for his new job. That was almost two weeks ago. Usually, the two checked in with one another almost every day. After seeing his apartment, Terry knew it in her gut. Chris never made it to Asheville. Terry raced over to the Iron River Police Department to report Chris missing. When she got there, she sat down with the chief of police, Laura Frizzo. 
Halfway through their conversation, Sergeant Cindy Barrett arrived to take over. Frizzo's shift was finished, but she assured Terry the case was in good hands. Chief Frizzo walked out to the parking lot, still thinking about Terry's story. The Oldenburg Group, the company where Chris worked, sounded oddly familiar. Then it hit her. The police got a call a few weeks earlier from the company's HR director, Laura Satori. She'd requested a wellness check for one of their employees. Though Frizzo was technically off the clock, she had to investigate. She looked up Laura's number and gave her a ring. Laura told Frizzo the employee she'd called about was 32-year-old Kelly Cochran. Kelly didn't show up for work that day and was fired shortly afterward for failing to provide the proper documentation for a medical leave. From there, Frizzo turned the conversation to Chris Regan. Laura's voice softened. She said Chris had requested time off on October 15th, but hadn't showed up the next day. It was uncharacteristic behavior, but Laura assumed he must have left for Asheville early. And that wasn't all. Laura filled in Frizzo on the rumors that Chris was dating Kelly. When she heard this, an alarm bell went off in the chief's head. Something about Kelly left her with a bad taste in her mouth. Back at the station, Terry gave Officer Barrett her first clue. One of Chris's coworkers had spotted his missing car at a park and ride in a township outside of town. Terry and Barrett headed over to see it for themselves. It didn't take long to find the gray Hyundai Genesis Sport sitting in a parking spot. Terry claimed Chris loved his car. He wouldn't have just abandoned it. More importantly, it proved Chris hadn't simply left for North Carolina earlier than expected. And what was inside the car was even more suspicious. Chris's knee brace, which he needed to wear after a recent surgery, was still sitting in the front seat. It was hard to believe Chris could get very far without it. Officer Barrett had seen enough. The next step was to talk to Kelly Cochran herself. She called the Michigan State Police and asked them to send a trooper to accompany her. The IRPD was small and often understaffed, so when they needed additional help, they usually reached out to the MSP. A short while later, an officer met her outside the Cochran's house. Kelly's husband, Jason, was the one who answered. When he saw the officers, he stepped outside and slammed the door shut behind him. He was curt and to the point. Barrett asked if Kelly was home. Jason looked back at the house for a moment, then said she was out. He claimed she'd be back in an hour. But at that very moment, the door swung open and Kelly appeared. She greeted the officers with a smile and apologized for her husband's behavior. When she asked how she could help them, the officers told her they were there about Chris. Kelly looked shocked. She claimed she'd messaged him on October 15th, but he hadn't answered her. Upon hearing about the car, Kelly remarked that Chris loved the car, past tense. That, coupled with Jason's shifty attitude, made Barrett confident the couple knew something about Chris's disappearance. The second she got back to the precinct, she called Frizzo to let her know. The next day, Frizzo got to the office bright and early. The first thing she did was to call Chris's new employers in North Carolina. 
It was still possible that Chris had simply left Iron River early without telling anyone. But Chris's point of contact at his new job said he hadn't heard from him in weeks. The company had assumed he decided to stay in Iron River. Frizzo thanked him and hung up. Next, she called the lab where Chris was supposed to get his drug screening done. They said he never showed up to his appointment. The calls confirmed what Frizzo already suspected. Chris Regan was missing. And for some reason, she couldn't stop thinking about Kelly and Jason Cochran. She couldn't shake the feeling that they knew something. The other officers on the case weren't so sure. After Barrett called the state police for help, three officers got on board to assist in the investigation. Their running theory was that Chris died by suicide. The park and ride was surrounded by dense forests that would have hidden him from view. Still, while the MSP officers thought Chris might have acted on his own, they agreed with Frizzo on one thing. Kelly and Jason were suspicious. So while Frizzo filed search warrants for their phones, car, and house, the MSP brought the couple in for questioning. Kelly went first. She seemed relaxed and eager to help. She appeared to genuinely care about Chris. She described Chris as a sweet and loving guy who lived a simple life. She said the two of them ate dinner together, went on hikes, had sex. When they asked her the last time she'd been in contact with him, Kelly said it was sometime between October 12th and 15th. They had dinner together at his apartment. Kelly seemed to be upfront with the investigators. She claimed Jason knew everything. She'd been transparent with him about her dating life and he was okay with her affairs. When they asked if Jason could have done something to Chris out of jealousy, she gave a firm no. Her husband had never threatened or abused her mentally, emotionally, or physically. He was sick, depressed, and angry, but Kelly was adamant that he wasn't violent. From there, the officers focused on Jason. Unlike his wife, he was a nervous wreck. Before they even began the interview, he told investigators about his struggles with anxiety and the fact that he'd been institutionalized in the past. Then, without any provocation, he started crying. He explained to police how his body had given out while he and Kelly were still in Indiana. He said Kelly had supported and cared for him. When they moved to Michigan and she wanted to see other people, he felt like he had to let her. Contradicting what Kelly said, Jason told investigators he wasn't okay with the relationships. He was deeply unhappy. Through tears, he told the officers that he didn't know much about Chris, other than the fact that his wife was dating him. Jason claimed that he couldn't even pick Chris out of a lineup. Watching the interview from afar, Frizzo was floored by Jason's emotions. She couldn't understand what had brought the large, burly man to tears, but she knew it was more than just his health. Frizzo suspected Jason might have gone after Chris in a moment of anger. She wanted to focus the investigation on him and Kelly, but there was a problem. The IRPD and MSP couldn't get on the same page. 
After interviewing Jason and Kelly, the state police thought Frizzo was spending too much time on a dead end. But Frizzo wouldn't back down. She knew Iron River better than the Michigan State Police did, and by early November, she managed to wrench back control of the investigation. With her at the helm, no stone would be left unturned, no question unanswered. She already sensed Jason was the weak link, and she had an idea of how to make him break. Coming up, Jason and Kelly flee, and Frizzo is right behind them. Put yourself in the shoes of a real-life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history, following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases, like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions, and the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. IRPD Chief Laura Frizzo wasted little time scheduling another interview with Kelly and Jason Cochran. And she already had a strategy in mind. She would turn the couple against one another. She thought her best chance was to get Jason to flip on Kelly. On November 10, 2014, Frizzo asked the couple to come back to the precinct. Jason was up first. Frizzo started by probing him about his relationship with Kelly. Jason took the bait. He told Frizzo about his low self-esteem. He said he didn't feel like enough of a man for his wife. Around Frizzo, Jason seemed meek and passive. He spoke low and slow and was clearly on edge. When she asked if he'd ever met Chris, Jason told her he hadn't. But after Frizzo pressed him, he clammed up and requested an attorney. Next up was Kelly. She was the strong and composed partner in the relationship. Frizzo started by asking Kelly if she was familiar with the parking ride where Chris's car was found. Kelly said she'd never heard of it or been there. From there, Kelly described her last night with Chris on October 14th. The night before, Chris was supposed to drive to Asheville for his drug test. Kelly said she cooked lasagna and took it over to Chris's apartment. The two ate and hung out for a little while. Then, according to Kelly, she went home. After that, Kelly lawyered up too, but Frizzo already had everything she needed. The chief had already spoken to one of Kelly's past boyfriends. He claimed the two of them used to meet up and have sex at the park and ride, Kelly knew exactly where the lot was. The cracks in Kelly's story were starting to emerge, and when Kelly, Jason, and Chris's phone records came back a few weeks later, Frizzo made a startling discovery. 
On the night of October 14th, all three cell phones pinged off towers near the Cochran's home. That meant Kelly and Chris must have met up at her house, not his apartment. From there, things started to snowball. The search warrant for Kelly and Jason's home finally came through in March of 2015. Jason and Kelly couldn't be there during the investigation, so they went across the street to their neighbors. David Saylor lived with his uncle and grandmother. She and Jason had become good friends with the family. David watched Jason as they all sat around the kitchen table. He was unusually quiet and sweating profusely. David had never seen his friend look so terrified. He started to wonder if he and Kelly had done something to Chris Regan. Meanwhile, Kelly's behavior only made him more suspicious. She gave David her mother's phone number and asked him to call her if anything happened to them. While Jason and Kelly were sweating at the sailors, the police were busy searching the home. As Frizzo inspected the yard, another neighbor approached her with an unsolicited complaint. He was fed up with Jason and Kelly. He told Frizzo that a few months earlier on an October afternoon, he'd smelled something rank coming from the Cochran's yard. The stench was truly awful, unlike anything he'd smelled before. When he went to investigate, he witnessed Jason burning something in a barrel in the backyard. Frizzo was just as determined as ever to figure out what the Cochrans knew. A few hours later, Kelly and Jason were able to return home. Jason told their friend David that they'd be back the next morning to let him know how the search went. But when David peered across the street the next day, Kelly and Jason's white truck was gone. The couple had skipped town, but that didn't mean they were home free. Someone in Iron River had hired a private investigator to find Chris. The PI knew Frizzo was on the case and approached her to get some information. After what happened with the state police, Frizzo was wary of outside help, but she figured a PI could be a good addition to the search. He could go places that law enforcement couldn't. Sensing Kelly and Jason might flee, he'd already placed a GPS tracker on their truck. Now, it indicated they were back in Indiana. Since they hadn't actually been charged with anything yet, there wasn't much Frizzo could do. In the meantime, she decided to search their house again. She had a feeling they'd missed something. And she was right. After a few hours, Frizzo uncovered a set of notebooks belonging to Jason. One of them was titled, Where Monsters Hide. The main character was a man named Quack Quack, which also happened to be Jason's nickname. Quack Quack was married, had health problems, and was angry at the world, just like Jason. And he was a killer. Up until that point, Frizzo had assumed that Jason was just a pawn in Kelly's scheme, but maybe he wasn't as weak as he let on. While she continued to investigate Kelly and Jason in Iron River, the couple made their own inquiries in Indiana. They didn't try to hide the fact that they'd run away. In fact, they often called the prosecutor's office fishing for updates. It was a bizarre situation. During one phone call, 
Frizzle told Kelly that Chris's case had been changed from a missing persons case to a homicide. The police needed her DNA for testing. Kelly immediately hung up the phone without responding. Frizzo did what she could, but it was difficult to move the case forward with Kelly and Jason so far away. She needed someone on her side who really knew the Cochrans. In time, Frizzo honed in on David Saylor and his uncle. The two of them had been Jason's closest confidants in Iron River. If anyone could confirm Jason had a dark side, it was them. So she brought the men into the station and asked them about Jason. Right away, they gave her some interesting information. Apparently, around the time Chris went missing, Jason borrowed a power saw from David. They heard buzzing from the Cochran's home that entire night. When they asked Jason what he'd been doing the next day, he said he was renovating the house, but David never saw him change a thing. The two men also mentioned the noticeable shift in Jason and Kelly's relationship. At first, it seemed like the two of them barely spent any time together and argued constantly. After Chris disappeared though, they suddenly became inseparable. Frizzo asked David if he was willing to become an informant to keep tabs on Kelly and Jason. He agreed. He told Frizzo the couple was staying at Kelly's parents' house in Hobart, Indiana. The second a warrant for Kelly and Jason's DNA came through, Frizzo contacted the Hobart Police Department to let them know where to find the Cochrans. Though the local authorities would be serving the warrant, Frizzo still wanted to be there when the Cochrans came into the station. So she made the six hour drive to Hobart. On July 24th, two officers went to the house where Kelly and Jason were staying. They found Jason standing in the driveway and told him they had a warrant to extract his DNA. He started to tremble uncontrollably. They led him into a patrol car and drove him back to the Hobart Police Department while two other officers went to pick up Kelly at work. Jason was shocked to see Frizzo in the interrogation room. As soon as she started to ask questions, he asked for a lawyer. Frizzo decided to try her luck with Kelly instead. But if Kelly was surprised to see Frizzo in Indiana, she didn't show it. Frizzo asked Kelly about the park and ride and once again, Kelly denied knowing where it was. Frizzo wasn't going to let it go this time. She said she knew Kelly had been there many times to have sex. Kelly, clearly shaken, refused to say anything else. Before Frizzo left the room, Kelly asked where Jason was. Frizzo turned back, locked her eyes with Kelly, and smirked. The move was subtle, but Frizzo could tell it had made an impression. She could see the fear in Kelly's eyes, the suspicion that Jason had turned on her. This strategy planted a seed of doubt in Kelly's mind, but it wasn't enough to turn her against Jason, at least not yet. Frizzo needed more help, so she reached out to the FBI and pleaded her case. To her surprise, they eagerly hopped on board. The FBI had resources the local police didn't. One of the first things they did was reverse engineer the GPS in Chris's car. Almost instantly, the case shot into high gear after that. Using the new data, 
investigators were able to place Chris's car at the Cochran's home on the last day he was seen. It was irrefutable proof that he'd gone over to see Kelly right before he disappeared. The FBI also conducted another search of the Cochran home in August. Among other things, they found a blue rabbit's foot unearthed from beneath the porch on the side of the house. Frizzo called Chris's friend Terry and asked if she'd ever seen him with it. Terry said she had. Chris was superstitious and a rabbit's foot was supposed to be good luck. He used to carry one in his back pocket. Little by little, the case was moving forward, but investigators didn't have enough yet to bring any charges against the Cochrans. They needed something foolproof. For the next few months, Rizzo and her team combed through hundreds of documents, phone records, and reports for something solid. They didn't know it then, but the entire investigation was about to be blown wide open. Coming up, Kelly makes a fatal mistake. Now, back to the story. In February of 2016, 16 months after Chris Regan went missing, Kelly Cochran called 911 from her parents' home in Hobart, Indiana. Paramedics arrived to find Jason sitting on the ground with his back against the wall and his head drooping to the side. His skin was purple and he was covered in vomit. While first responders tried to revive him, Kelly hovered about, slowing them down with nonstop questions. After a few minutes, the paramedics rushed Jason into the ambulance, pumped him full of medication, and connected him to a machine to help him breathe. But it was too late. Jason was pronounced dead shortly after. Toxicology reports showed massive amounts of heroin in his body. It looked like he'd overdosed. Soon after Frizzo heard the news, she got a call from Detective Jeremy Ogden at the Hobart Police Department. He was leading the investigation into Jason's death and wanted to talk about Chris's case. They decided they could help each other. Ogden told Frizzo he was suspicious of Kelly. She was extremely disruptive when the paramedics came to check on Jason. Once Ogden visited the coroner, he became even more suspicious. Jason had bruises all over his forehead and eyes. The doctor explained they were hemorrhages from pressure to his neck. Jason had been suffocated. The examiner told Ogden he was going to rule the death a homicide and the detective knew exactly who was responsible. He could have charged Kelly for Jason's murder right then and there, but he wasn't ready to do that. The only way Frizzo was going to find Chris's body was if Kelly led the way. Ogden knew it wouldn't be easy to outsmart Kelly. He poured over her interviews with the Michigan police to try and get a better understanding of her personality. Pretty soon, he had a tactic in mind. He decided he needed to make Kelly think he was on her side. The next day, the detective met Kelly at her parents' house. She led him to the room where Jason died and gave him her version of events. Ogden watched her intently as she spoke. She kept a straight face as she described waking up to her husband laying next to her, his skin blue. Beyond her chilling lack of emotion, there were also a few discrepancies in her story. First, 
Kelly said Jason had fallen off the bed and then vomited on the floor. She said he somehow threw up on the bed after that. The tone changed when Ogden asked Kelly about Chris Regan. Right off the bat, she said she didn't know anything about the disappearance. Besides, Chris didn't have anything to do with what happened to Jason. She didn't understand why Ogden would ask her about Chris at all. Ogden decided to switch tactics and appeal to Kelly's emotions. He knew she had some, deep down, or at least he hoped she did. He told Kelly he just wanted to give Chris's family closure. Jason was gone. If he'd done something to Chris, she didn't need to protect him anymore. Instead of answering, Kelly just smiled. Ogden knew he wouldn't get anything from her right away, but it was all part of his plan to earn her trust. Over the next few weeks, he continued to talk to Kelly. He made her choices clear. She could either be a suspect or a witness. Ogden emphasized that Jason wasn't around to tell his side of the story any longer. She could control the narrative. But as it turned out, Ogden wasn't completely right about that. Jason's friend, Walt Ammerman, told police there was no way Jason had died of a heroin overdose. He may have smoked weed to ease his back pain, but he'd never been into hard drugs. And Walt went even further. He'd always thought Kelly was controlling and treated Jason poorly. Now that his friend was dead, he wanted to offer his help. And Ogden had just the job for him. He asked Walt to come to Indiana to become a confidential informant. Walt agreed. They figured out a game plan and a few days later, they met up in a town called Merrillville. Walt dialed Kelly's number while Ogden listened in. When she answered, Walt told her that back in January, he'd gotten a package from Jason. Inside was a note and a sealed envelope. The message instructed Walt to send the envelope to the IRPD if anything happened to him. Kelly let out a loud sigh. In a quiet, almost desperate voice, she asked him not to send it. Walt said he felt like he had to do something about the package. Kelly let out a laugh and then almost immediately started weeping. She told him to do what he had to do, then hung up the phone. Walt and Ogden looked at each other and smiled. There was no letter to the IRPD, no package in the mail, but the ruse had clearly worked. The panic in Kelly's voice said she was finally ready to talk. Like clockwork, Kelly called the police the next day. She sounded nervous. She told Ogden that a letter was on its way to the IRPD, explaining what happened to Chris. Ogden suppressed the gasp that was rising in his throat. It was the first time Kelly admitted to knowing anything about Chris's death. It was only a matter of time before she came clean. A few weeks later, Kelly texted Ogden and said she needed to speak with him right away. She was at the Veterans Memorial Park. Ogden found Kelly completely passed out in the front seat of her truck. The reason she fainted is unclear, but after a while, Ogden revived her and persuaded her to go to a restaurant to talk. He could see Kelly was unraveling. This was his chance. He had to work fast. 
Kelly started by rambling on about the futility of life. Then she told Ogden she wanted to make a deal with him. If he told her how Jason had died, she would tell him what happened to Chris Regan. Ogden looked at her, one eyebrow raised. He told her Jason had died from a high dose of heroin in his system and suffocation. Kelly asked him if he thought she'd killed her husband. Ogden said he didn't think she did. He knew. Kelly stared at him blankly for a moment, then became dodgy and evasive. It was clear she wasn't going to keep her word. After that, Ogden walked Kelly to her car. As he turned to go, she rolled down her window and suddenly yelled out at him that Jason had killed Chris. Ogden stopped in his tracks. Kelly had to come back to the precinct right away. Finally, Kelly Cochran was ready to talk. And of course, she told Ogden that Chris's murder was all Jason's idea. She claimed she'd only invited Chris over for dinner. While the two of them were having sex in the foyer, Jason supposedly shot and killed Chris on his own. Then he dragged his body to the basement to dismember it. She said he made her bag the pieces and take them upstairs. Together, they took the body out to the woods. Kelly relayed the story casually as if it was a mundane chore. Ogden knew she was lying from the get-go. Her story was wildly inconsistent, but at that point, he needed to keep her talking. He asked Kelly to go to Iron River with him and show him where she and Jason dumped Chris's body. After some convincing, she agreed. The two arrived in Iron River early the next morning. Kelly directed Ogden to a hiking area there called Pentoga Trail. Frizzo and a few other officers followed behind in their vehicles. For the next few hours, Kelly, Ogden, Frizzo, and a canine unit searched the area to no avail. It seemed Kelly had led them on a wild goose chase. Apparently, she wasn't ready to give up just yet. Exhausted and frustrated, they headed back to Indiana. By that point, Ogden had gotten to know Kelly pretty well. If there was one thing she loved, it was playing games, but he liked them too. And now it was time for his favorite, good cop, bad cop. On April 26, 2016, Ogden told Kelly that he knew she was the one behind Chris's murder. She was the mastermind. All her stories about Jason abusing her and forcing her into the crime were lies. Kelly smirked, but didn't deny his accusations. When Ogden asked her to come in the next day for a polygraph test, she agreed. But on April 27th, she was a no-show. A few hours later, she sent Ogden a text that read, the West Coast looks good this time of day. Ogden called Frizzo to fill her in. Within hours, they were able to locate Kelly's phone in Wingo, Kentucky. She had a cousin there and was likely hiding out at their house. Her quip about the West Coast was meant to throw investigators off her scent. The US Marshals descended on the house around 8 p.m. to take Kelly Cochran into custody. The games were finally over. Once Kelly was behind bars, it seemed she finally accepted her fate. 
She told Ogden about the pact she and Jason made on their wedding night. If either of them cheated, they had pledged to kill the homewrecker. Ogden was horrified. He knew Kelly was dark and sadistic, but somehow the truth felt even worse than he'd imagined. A few weeks later, Kelly was transferred to an Iron County jail and charged with the first-degree murder of Chris Regan. On May 17th, Kelly was ready to show Frizzo where Chris's remains actually were. The two of them returned to the Pintoga Trail and this time, she led Frizzo and the search team to a different spot in the forest. Before long, the team found a human skull. For Chris's loved ones, the discovery was bittersweet. They could finally lay him to rest and get some closure, but justice hadn't been done yet. Kelly's trial date was set for February 14th, 2017, and despite her previous cooperation, she decided to plead not guilty. On the stand, she described Jason as violent and abusive, though she'd admitted to lying about the accusations to Ogden, she'd once again changed her story. She insisted Jason had planned the whole thing, but the jurors were unconvinced. After two weeks, Kelly Cochran was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison. In May of that year, Kelly was back in court again to be tried for killing her husband. She pleaded guilty, admitting to injecting Jason with heroin and then suffocating him until he died. But she was adamant that she'd only killed Jason because he had abused her and as punishment for killing Chris. She was sentenced to 65 years in prison to be served consecutively along with her life sentence for Chris Regan's murder. After a lifetime of lies, manipulation, and games, Kelly Cochran finally paid the price. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Sara Hussein, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Tara Wells. Fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.